will be wrapping up John 10 today, so if you would go there with me. John chapter 10. And yes, I can now see whether you're sleeping. (laughs) This is my first set of glasses. I'm going to cover verses 31 to 42 this morning, uh, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 22 since it will have some bearing on on the message. Let me also mention uh, that uh, Dan Hilmers will be serving us with the word next week, so be praying for Dan and also for uh, Amy and her strength and protection as Dan prepares. That also means that, Lord willing, we will be falling into John 11 on Easter Sunday, where Jesus fittingly says that he's the resurrection and the life and raises Lazarus from the dead to confirm it. So having said that, let's pick up in verse 22 of John 10. Here, God's word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came... And scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across, to the, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come now and attend the preaching of your word through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray that the Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds and that he would shine the spotlight upon Jesus Christ and who he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are again. 
We've arrived at yet another place where the Jews show an increasing hostility against Jesus because of something he said. The Jewish people are already irritated that Jesus wouldn't just come out and tell them who he was. You see that in verse 24, where they say, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Of course, Jesus explains that he had been telling them who he was. He just wasn't using the categories that they were willing to accept. One of those categories in particular is what Jesus kept saying about his relationship with God the Father. Again and again, Jesus' assertions about his Father would just irk the Jews, really get under their skin and get everybody riled up against him. This is the case once again here in verse 31. The Jews wanted to know whether Jesus was the Christ, and so Jesus tells them, but he does so by giving them even more about his relationship with the Father. His Father has given him a people. His Father is committed to saving those people, is as committed to saving those people as the Son is committed to saving them. And His Father is also greater than all. And then He ends His answer with the rather astonishing claim, I and the Father are one. That Father that He just said was greater than all? Yeah, I and the Father are one with Him. I am one with Him in divinity and mission. All the Jews want to know is whether this man, Jesus, is claiming to be the appointed Messiah. But Jesus gives them more than they bargained for. He claims to be one with God the Father. And that generates enough anger in the crowd to want to stone him. But we, as readers of John's Gospel, when we're looking in from the outside, we shouldn't miss Jesus' point. It's not that Jesus dismissed their question altogether about whether or not he's the Christ. He's just told them how to understand that he's the Christ. And the only way that they can understand that he's the Christ is if they see clearly his relationship with the Father. So he doesn't dismiss their question. He simply tells them how they must understand his identity. They must see him as the son, the only son who was sent from the father. Attempting to know the Christ apart from his father is like attempting to know a sunbeam apart from the sun. It's like attempting to know love apart from the one who loves. The Jews could only know Jesus rightly insofar as they understood him as God the Son in relation to God the Father. That's actually the whole point of John's Gospel. In chapter 20, verse 31, we see that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we know what kind of son John has in mind because he told us in chapter 1, verse 14, he is the only Son from the Father, the Word, the eternal Word, who is made flesh. The same is true for us this morning. If we are to know Jesus truly, as Holy Scripture reveals Him to us, and if we are to proclaim Him rightly to each other and to the world for salvation, then we must see Jesus 
as the only Son from the Father. That's Jesus' point in his answer to the Jews. I and the Father are one, and then that's what Jesus will continue to reinforce throughout the remainder of our passage. But we see it unfold in, in at least three more ways. The first way goes something like this. When we see Jesus rightly in relation to his Father, we see that Jesus is the divine Son who came down. Jesus is the divine Son who came down. Look at me at the exchange between Jesus and the Jews who want to stone him. He says this in verse 32. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews then answer like so. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man... Make yourself God. I want us to pay attention to the irony of the Jews' response to Jesus. You, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus implies by his question that the Jews have absolutely no grounds to stone him. The works that he has done have not only been good works as opposed to bad ones... They've not only been many works, as opposed to just a few, they have also been many good works from the Father. God the Father gave them to Jesus for Him to perform. But the Jews are so opposed to Jesus, they could care less about giving any serious evaluation to Jesus' works. They're fed up with Jesus' words. And they charge Him with blasphemy. By saying, I and the Father are one, Jesus has just ascribed to himself the rights and qualities that belong solely to God when he is but a mere man in their eyes. As a man, he has put himself in the place of absolute rule and power belonging only to the covenant God that they're familiar with in the scriptures. And in their minds, and according to their law, in Leviticus 24, it was only just to get rid of such a person. But here's where they go wrong. Had they evaluated Jesus' works and interpreted them as Jesus told them to, as those being from the Father, they would see that he is more than simply a man. We've already been told why Jesus performed the works he did. The Father gave Jesus' works as a way to bear witness to his Son. They were unique works that only God could perform. They were specific works that only made sense in the grand scheme of how God promised to save the world. These works that the Father entrusted to the Son were the Father's way of declaring to the world, this is who my Son is, He is God in the flesh, and this is why my Son came, to save the world. To bring the sweet wine of the kingdom of God, like we see in chapter 2. To cleanse my people from their corruption like we see again in chapter 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple. To cause the new birth. To make true worshipers into false ones. 
to heal the sick, chapter 4, to make the lame leap like the deer, chapter 5, to raise the dead to life, chapter 5 again, to feed my people with all satisfying bread, chapter 6, to silence creation's turmoil with a single word when he calmed the seas. In chapter 6 again, and to open the eyes of the blind, chapter 9. So here's the irony in the Jews calling Jesus out for blasphemy. They say, you being a man, make yourself God when the testimony of the Father in and through the works of Jesus shows just the opposite. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came down. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became man. In other words, Jesus isn't making himself anything. He is what he is as divine Son. The Jews only got Jesus' words half right. He was claiming to be God, but not because he was a man exalting himself to the place of God, a place he once did not occupy, which would in fact be blasphemy, but because he was the eternal Son of God who humbled himself to the place of a man. John put it this way already for us in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of what? The only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The eternal Word was made flesh, and that eternal Word is the only Son from the Father. Brothers and sisters, this truth that God's eternal Son humbled himself and took to himself a human nature with no compromise of his deity, is just as much a stumbling block for people today as it was for the people Jesus is talking to in this passage. It is a most staggering claim to say that Jesus the Jew is fully God and fully man. The incarnation of the Son of God is a great offense to our Jewish and Muslim neighbors who reject any notion of a plurality of persons in the one God and who scoff at the idea that the eternal God would ever stoop so low as to become a man. To their minds, we are idolaters and blasphemers since we ascribe to a man the honor that alone belongs to God in their eyes. We're not ascribing to a man anything. We're recognizing him for who he really is and how God has revealed him to us. Regardless of what Jews, Muslims, and other world religions make of Jesus, we must maintain that not recognizing the deity of Jesus strikes at the very heart of of the gospel in which God has revealed himself to us still as one God, but in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the person of the eternal Son came down. 
Despite the opposition and misunderstandings and slander and ridicule and even violent hatred for how the deity of Jesus undermines all world religions. God has revealed himself to us this way in scripture and in the person of his divine son and therefore we must confess him and adore him as such. He has not left the identity of Jesus open to our speculation. He has borne witness to what we should see in him, God in the flesh. Moreover, in terms of our salvation, in terms of our salvation, the holiness of God is so precious to uphold in saving anybody. The wrath of God against sinners is so terrible. The sacrifice necessary for our forgiveness must be so worthy. The love of God is so extravagant in making provision for sinners. The humility of God is so far-reaching to a fallen humanity. And the glory of God is so ultimate of a goal for the nations to be happy forever that God the Son came down on our behalf. Religions that say he didn't either reject God's self-revelation in Scripture or they make little of God's glory and much of man. But the Bible teaches that my sins have offended the most holy God and they have separated me from his precious presence with a chasm that is too far for me to cross. The only way I come to God is if he comes to me. And God did that when the divine son came down. Jesus' incarnation is not just an affront to Jews and Muslims. It's an affront to all of humanity. It's an affront to all humanity because it says, yes, we're all that needy. And we're all that sinful. And we're all that incapable of helping ourselves. At the same time, it says that God is loving. God is that humble. And God is that gracious and merciful to sinners to give up his divine son in glory and send him to our wretched world in order to save it. Let me also add this. Knowing this truth does not give us permission to treat others with contempt when they reject it or to retaliate with arrogant tones when they criticize us for believing it or to ignore their desperate plight with some form of Christian snobbery and isolation. No, if we as a church are to look anything like our master, and if the world is to see anything of our master inside of us, then our lives will be given over to the Spirit of our Lord's own incarnation. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake 
he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. You know, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grass-held on to, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, even unto death on a cross. Like our master, we must make ourselves poor to enrich others in this world by giving our time, making service to others a priority, showing concern for the needs of the lost, going to the desperate and destitute as our Lord came down to us and laying our lives down in love when they rage against the message that we bring to them. It is not... I mean, is it not Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who is sustaining every breath of these Jews? Is it not Jesus who continues speaking the word of truth with patience and mercy and appealing for these Jews to believe in him while they're holding rocks in his hands with his name on it? Let us imitate this humility of our God. Second, when we see Jesus rightly in relation to his Father, we see that Jesus is the divine Son consecrated for his Father's mission. He is the divine Son consecrated for his Father's mission. It's not that the divine, it's not that the divine Son came down on his own initiative. It's, it's not as if, you know, Jesus is up there and he says, man, you guys really screwed things up and uh, you made my father angry. I, I'm going to go down so you don't get him. That's not how things are happening. What we see next is that Jesus came down according to the will of his father. His Father consecrated Him for the specific task of saving us. He says in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If He called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? The law can sometimes just refer, be a general reference to the Old Testament. And Jesus, is, and Jesus uses it this way here. And gives the Jews some food for thought from Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is an Old Testament passage where God reveals himself as the supreme judge over his covenant people. The scene is one in which God takes his rightful place in the midst of his assembly, and in this assembly are a number of human judges, governing, governing rulers of sorts, who are supposed to represent God's rule over his people. The problem is that these human rulers aren't representing God's rule over his people at all. They're not representing God's justice, and so God calls them out on it. 
It's just that when he does, he refers to these human rulers as gods. The Lord says in Psalm 82, verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, calling them gods doesn't mean these human rulers are divine. It's simply another way to describe how these men are God's representatives, much like we might use the Lord in reference to God and lords in reference to lesser rulers on earth. And even within Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7, the reference to gods is then further clarified by sons of the Most High. Or another way we might put it, sons of God. The Most High is God. And that helps us better see why Jesus goes here in the debate. If God called even these unjust human rulers gods, if they were even referred to as sons of the Most High, sons of God, These who obviously weren't at all, all that relationally close to Yahweh. I mean, even their own works and deeds and injustice proves that. Was it so wrong for Jesus, whose actions have always been just? Whose closeness to God is unmatchable? whose works are so in tune with the Father's will? Was it so wrong? Was it so outlandish for Jesus to claim that he was the Son of God? Now, his claim to be God's Son obviously has much more packed into it. He is truly divine, whereas these human rulers in Psalm 82 are not. But his point is that these Jews are are so attached to their own agenda against him that they're not even willing to grant room for the testimony of their own Bibles. The scriptures cannot be broken. They have an abiding witness. And they're not even willing to grant room that Jesus might fit into this category in Psalm 82. If anything, Jesus' life and testimony has proven again and again and again and again that he was precisely the type of son Israel was supposed to be but never was. That he was precisely the type of son Adam was supposed to be but never was. More than that, He says that the Father consecrated him. He consecrated him. Simply put, that means the Father approves of him and set him apart for his specific mission. But I think we can get even more specific in light of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and in light of how John takes Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament and links it to the feasts in Israel. We've already seen that he fulfills the Feast of Passover... Jesus himself is the Passover lamb in chapter 1, verse 29. And we've already seen how Jesus fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the one who gives living water. We saw that in chapter 7. But John has brought us to another feast. Chapter 10, verse 22. The Feast of Dedication. 
Now, this particular feast is not mentioned specifically in the Old Testament. That's because it didn't come until later in 164 B.C. under Judas Maccabeus. But what is present in the Old Testament is what the Feast of Dedication remembered. Namely, God's own act of consecrating both the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple under Solomon. God consecrated both the tabernacle and the temple through a visual manifestation of his glory. And we see that in Exodus 20 uh, in Exodus 40 and 1 Kings chapter 8. God consecrated them both like this. God's cloud, it says, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much so that Moses wasn't even able to enter it. The same was true with the dedication of the temple under Solomon. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of of the Lord and both Exodus and First Cream, First First Creams, First Kings, both places speak of that event, God's glory filling the temple as His consecration. That's how He consecrated it. The same sort of consecration is even expected of God's future dwelling place, spoken of in Ezekiel forty-three verses three to six. So here's what's going on. By drawing our attention to the Feast of Dedication and linking it with the Father's consecration of Jesus, John helps us see that the glory of God is now beheld in the Son of God Himself. This plays out all the more as as we see that Jesus Himself is the fulfillment and replacement of the temple in John's Gospel. We saw that starting in chapter 2. He's the place where the glory of God resides. The Father's consecration of the Son reveals that Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1. When God set apart Jesus, He set apart the one in whom the whole Fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's Colossians 2. God set apart the eternal Son because the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the decisive visual manifestation of God's glory par excellence. And therefore he has God's approval for the mission. There is no other person, no other created being, no other heavenly power who reflects the Father's glory like the Son of God reflects the Father's glory and has reflected his glory for eternity. No one else could bear God's image rightly and fully like God's Son could and would bear God's image rightly and fully when He took on human flesh. 
No one else followed God's will like the Son has enjoyed doing for all eternity. No one else brings God more glory in the saving of sinners than Jesus brings Him glory. Therefore, God approves of Jesus and Him alone to be sent for the world's salvation. The Son gets the mission to save sinners because the Father delights in Him the most and because He is the only Son who is infinitely worthy and infinitely competent to fulfill it. If that's the case, then there are no other saviors, no other messiahs, no other Christ figures, no other deliverers besides Jesus Christ. He alone deserves our trust and our confidence and our love. We must give ourselves over wholly to Jesus if we want to know and experience God's glory. For God has consecrated Jesus alone to descend from heaven and die in in our place on the cross. Moreover, that means the message we proclaim to the world is not ourselves. It's not our church. It's not our leaders. It's not our accomplishments. It is Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves being servants for His sake and for His glory. This is what Paul points out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. And what does he do? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where is it? In the face of Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. It's to be found in the face of Jesus Christ since he came and descended and took upon him human flesh. Nowhere else. The glory of God dwells there in Him. If others are to know the glory of God truly, we must help them see it revealed in the person of Jesus. So that is who we proclaim. We proclaim the Son to others. We do not proclaim ourselves. Lastly, when we see Jesus rightly in relation to His Father, we see that Jesus is the divine Son who reveals His Father. Jesus is the divine Son who reveals His Father. So we've seen He came from heaven to earth as the divine Son. He didn't do that on His own will. He did that according to the will of His Father who consecrated Him because He was worthy to fulfill that mission. He consecrated, He set Him apart for. Now we see that part of His mission is to reveal the Father. It's to reveal His Father. Verse 37 If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Why? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You know, there are occasions where we've all used the expression, like father, like son. And hopefully we mean that in positive ways. What we mean is that there are certain qualities 
certain characteristics, certain behaviors, expressions of personality that come out simply because of genetics or upbringing or being around each other all the time. What Jesus says here totally blows those human categories out of the water. Because there's no real sense in which a human son mutually indwells his human father. And vice versa. There are limitations among finite persons like us. Jesus and his father have no such limitations when it comes to their relationship to one another. They are infinite. Because Jesus as Son is one in divinity with His Father, there is an intercommunion and sharing of the divine essence so that each person, Father and Son, indwells the other willingly, eternally, unceasingly, and simultaneously. I'm going to say that again. Because Jesus as Son is one in divinity with His Father. There is an intercommunion and sharing of the divine essence so that each person, Father and Son, indwells the other willingly, meaning it's without external constraints. They love indwelling each other. Eternally, meaning the mutual indwelling never had a beginning, there wasn't a point ever where this father was like, I think I'll start indwelling my son. And the son, I think I'll start indwelling. It's been for eternity. Unceasingly, meaning it never ends, ever. And simultaneously, meaning that one indwelling isn't ever preceding the other. And now we punt to the mystery of the Trinity. Now, that doesn't mean the Father is the Son or the Son is the Father. That would be heresy. Neither the Father nor the Son ever share the other's unique person or role within the Godhead. But it does mean that whatever the Father is doing, the Son does. And whatever the Father is saying, the Son himself says. And whatever the Father is willing, the Son Himself wills. And whatever the Father is loving, the Son Himself loves. But always doing so in their respective persons and unity in the Godhead. This is another way for Jesus to affirm the complete unity He shares with His Father. But the unity between the Father and the Son is not just something that Jesus keeps up here in the abstract. It's something he says is revealed in his works so that we know God. It's not up here just for theological speculation and toying with. It's so that we know God. He's he's not teaching these things in a seminary classroom. 
He's on the streets in Jerusalem and a bunch of guys with rocks in their hands and he's appealing to them to know this about him so that they know the Father and have fellowship with God. This is not for the classroom. This is for the evangelist. He's telling them these things so that they come to know the true God. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He wants them to know God. And if they see his works rightly, then they will know God. They will see him in the Christ. Later on, one of the disciples named Philip will say to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus rebukes him and says to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Have I been... Have I been with you so long? You don't know me? And then he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's how completely we see the Father's character and will and wisdom and love and glory and divinity in the person of Jesus Christ. He tells the whole story about God the Father. John puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who's that? That's the Son. Jesus. He has made Him known. He has made God known. Only God can make God known to us. And so it has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our point, our our only point of access to the Almighty. We are sometimes tempted to think that Jesus is sort of the stepping stone to the Father. That couldn't be further from the truth. He's not a mere stepping stone to the Father. He's the only way we know the Father. Ever. So we could say that the father-son relationship becomes the basis for all that we do as Christians in terms of worship or prayer or service he becomes the this relationship becomes the basis for all we know and do the son's relationship to the father for example means that our worship can never happen apart from approaching God as he himself has revealed as he has revealed himself to us Namely, we come to the Father through the Son in our worship. We are gathered into one assembly because of what the Father has achieved through His Son. We come to know the Father as He has revealed Himself through His Son in Scripture. We come to that knowledge through the Son. We then respond to this God. We respond with praise and adoration of the Father who is one with the Son. 
and we confess and we pray and we repent and we ask God the Father through the Son. Normally we, ex- we express this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. And then we go out from here and we serve and we love in ways that reflect the Son's love of the Father and obedience to His Father's will. Everything we do as Christians stems from our knowledge of the Father's relationship to the Son. Our submission to one another is built upon it. A wife's submission in her role under her husband is built upon it. Read 1 Corinthians 11. The moral foundations of the universe are built upon the Son's obedience to the Father. The way that fathers relate to their children is built upon it. The way that we interact with the world is built upon the Father's relationship to His Son. The way we respond to affliction is modeled after it as well. What did Jesus say? I mean, Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus continued entrusting Himself to the Father while others were ridiculing Him and mocking Him and pulling on His beard. Everything we do as Christians stems from our knowledge of the Father's relationship to the Son. So it is of utmost necessity that you familiarize yourself with this as it's revealed in Scripture. And that we avoid building our church and our relationships around this vague God talk. God has revealed Himself as a trinity of persons in one God. And we must continue to make that explicit in all that we do and in all that we interact over. Moreover, I think it would do many of us well in our Christian walk to be reminded, exhorted, to think regularly about the Father's relationship to the Son or just the Trinity, period, because the way to turn your heart away from sin, away from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, is to cultivate a heart for God and His glory. And you will not see God rightly and fully. You will not know His glory unless you see God through His Son. So, what better way to cultivate a heart for God and His glory than to meditate on the Father's relationship to the Son. You will not exhaust it. (laughs) You will not exhaust it. I'm talking about not just when it mentions it in Scripture explicitly. I'm talking about hanging hanging on to the Father's relationship to the Son in every verse when you're reading the Bible. Even Genesis 1. Every verse. You will not exhaust your God. And as you see Him more and more clearly, the more your spiritual taste buds will want more of Him and more of Him over sin. 
Let's just take a passage like John 3.16, which you cannot understand apart from knowing the Trinity. It's the Father who sent the Son and the Spirit who gives eternal life. Trinity's all bound up in there. But let's just take John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes on Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And let's turn it over in our minds in light of the Father's relationship to the Son. This is what you would do in your work day. You read your morning devotion or your evening devotion, whatever you do it, and you're holding your memory verses in your mind, and you go in throughout the day meditating on this Father relating to the Son on my behalf here in John 3.16. And when we turn it over on our minds, we, we think, think of it in terms of the Father's relationship with the Son, that His relationship with the Son... Never had a beginning. Never had a beginning. Okay, for an eternity, their relationship with one another has been characterized by nothing but love and perfect, intense affection for one another. And the Father loved the Son and everything about Him because the Son perfectly reflected the glory of the Father. And the Son loved the Father in return. And the relationship between the Father and the Son was full of this eternal and intense love. Knowing that then helps you see how great His love for you really is. Because God isn't dependent on this world to be a loving God. He is love. Because he loved, the Father has eternally loved His Son. He doesn't even need the world to be a loving God. And He doesn't even need to show sinners mercy to be a loving God. He is love in and of Himself because He is the persons of the Godhead are are full of this felicity and love for one another. He is the fount of love, quite apart from the world he created. He wasn't obligated to love any of us in order to be loving. He simply was loving. Now turn John 3.16 again in your mind. That God, even though He wasn't obligated to love the world in order to be a loving God, and yet He did so anyway, despite our sin and rebellion against Him. More than that, He did to this degree. He loved us to this degree that the, that the eternal Son of His affection, He gave Him up. He offered Him up, this eternal One, as a sacrifice for our sins. That's good news. That's good news. That I might gain eternal life because of the Father giving up the Son of His eternal love and total affection. Which John 17, we're turning it now again, Which John 17 says that eternal life includes being caught up into the love the Father has for His Son for all eternity. 
such that God loves his children who've been united to Christ with the same intensity he loves his son. (laughs) The news is just getting better. John 17, verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me might be in them and I in them. If Jesus is in here, you get the love of the Father for the Son in you. Now, you've got these things in your mind. Now put them up against anything this world offers. Anything. There's nothing in the universe that comes even within light years of satisfying your soul like the love of God can satisfy your soul. But the way you savor it is by seeing it through the Father's relationship to the Son. And we haven't even begun to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in this. That's in 14 and 16. It's coming. Your mind's going to explode. Your heart will be so full So let me encourage you to cultivate a heart for God by meditating on the Father's relationship to the Son in everything. You can't understand John 3.16. You can't understand the creation of the world. John 1.1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. You can't understand the creation of the world. You can't understand where the world is heading, John 17. Or you, you can't even understand how that everything will eventually get there, John 5. Unless you understand the Father's relationship to the Son. One more exhortation. All of us have two ways to live this morning, and we see both of them fleshed out here in verses 39 to 42. Some of the people remain in their unbelief and sought to arrest Jesus. It didn't matter what he said. Others, however, believe. Look at verse 42. Many came to Jesus And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So John has set before us two ways to live. We can live in unbelief or we can live in belief. And there's only one way that leads to eternal life. It's the belief. The belief in Jesus. Only one of them leads to eternal life. Belief that Jesus is the Christ, God's divine, consecrated, and sent Son. So trust that His words are true this morning. Stake your life on His teaching, all of you, and you will have fellowship with the Father. And if you don't know Him, I would beg of you to come and talk to anybody in this room who professes to be a follower of Christ, and they will be delighted to share with you all that Jesus is for us in relation to his Father. Let's pray.